and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. So normally it would just be Allie and I and we'd be hanging out, having a couple of drinks and talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to women who are currently writing about Herstory. We have a very special guest with us here today, Dr. Sally Wagner. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Dr. Wagner is an author, a women's study program pioneer, and we have invited her on the show today to talk about Sisters in Spirit and its adapted version for younger readers, We Want Equal Rights. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, where do I begin? <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I, I fell into everything that I've done, but by accident, I uh, ended up helping to found one of the first women's studies programs in the country. It was actually the first one to offer a minor. And then through another accident, because I had fallen in love with Matilda Jocelyn Gage and wanted to know about how do I talk to the dead? Um, the, a suffragist important, you covered her. And um, so I ended up going back to graduate school and getting one of the first doctorates awarded for work in the field of women's studies. And I've taught for 50 years. And uh, I think the most fun class I'm teaching right now through the honors program at uh, Syracuse University is one uh, class entitled Activism in the 60s, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And uh, <laughs> the class fills quickly and it's really full of, of anecdotes about you know, my work in the anti-war movement and the early women's rights movement and yeah, fun stuff. Oh, that's so great. Well, as a women's studies major, um, <laughs> that was me. Um, I graduated a couple years ago from Towson and I loved my program because literally the best classes are like hidden in the women's studies major and minor. <laughs> Like, I took a class on women in detective fiction, and we just got to read mystery books the whole time. It was awesome. And here I was, being an idiot, taking history classes. <laughs> when I should have been doing that. Um, so we made a cocktail for your book, and Katie's going to introduce it, mm -hmm. and then we're going to say a little cheers. Yes. So this cocktail is called Sisters and Spirits, and it is a combination of two cocktails we've made before that we made for Matilda Jocelyn Gage and Sacagawea. So this is equal parts vodka, Campari, cranberry juice, orange juice, and cinnamon, and then you shake it all up, pour it over ice, and then you garnish it with rosemary. So cheers! Cheers! <laughs> and it has a beautiful color, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's a beautiful, like, dark, dark pinkish red. Yeah. I love a pink cocktail, especially with, like, the bright green of the rosemary. Mm. It's really nice. Sacagawea would not have been drinking that. No. But Matilda Jocelyn Gage did have a glass of medicinal wine periodically. Yeah. <laughs> I am drinking medicinal wine in honor of her. Ah, perfect. <laughs> and that's a cute glass. It Look is a at cute that glass. with the little flowers on it. Um, and you said we should give a disclaimer, right? Yes, I think... Um, actually, you know what, I would, I wonder if we could instead, uh, although we won't be talking about this book, could we dedicate it to this book, The Women's Suffrage Movement? This yes. was um, an anthology that I did uh, that came out in 2019 and with Penguin Classics and my friend Gloria Steinem did the intro to it. But the reason that I would like to do it for this is because Matilda Jocelyn Gage said the most dangerous woman in America was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union because they not only wanted to outlaw alcohol, they wanted to put God in the Constitution and create a Christian nation, which would have destroyed the wall of separation between church and state. So I would like to drink to the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the fact that we have finally abolished prohibition, yes. which they worked so hard to get. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so let's begin with the kind of the setting and the groundwork for Sisters in Spirit. Okay. This is about the white women's suffrage movement in the United States and indigenous women. So from what I understand in your book, indigenous women were much more free than white women. 
oh, whoa, it was like the mirror opposite. Women, once they married, before we started organizing, finally, and changing our, our, uh, our lives in the mid-19th century, once you married, you became dead in the law. You didn't exist. So you had no right to your body, no right to your children, no right to your property, no right to anything. Anything that you owned or brought into the marriage or got while you were married became your husband's to do anything he wanted. Husbands could will away an unborn child. Give, give a child that you're carrying to somebody else. They're dying, they write a will. This person will get the child once it's born. So they saw these women who were, <laughs> they had political voice. I mean, of course you couldn't vote. If you were dead in the lawn, didn't exist. You know, it wasn't that you wanted rights, you wanted legal existence. Mm -hmm. So they knew Native women, Indigenous women, who had the absolute authority over their bodies, who had children came through the female line and continue to today. The, everyone had a political voice. Clan mothers would nominate hold in office and remove, if necessary, the chief that they put in place to make the decisions. They were the eyes and ears. He was the voice. But boy, he had to listen to the eyes and the ears because she is the one who has the, um, the connection with the community. And they bring their concerns to her. And then she vets them, puts them before the chief. And if he does anything that is in his own self-interest, isn't it for the seventh generation? If he abuses or has ever abused a woman or a child, he will never be a chief. And that continues today. That's a thousand year history that continues today. So what do you think these suffragists thought when they knew these women? I know how I feel when I'm around about Anushoni women today. I think, hmm, if I see a vision of what I want my life to be like culturally, well, how I want us to create our world, what did they see? Yeah, absolutely. And I love there's one part in the book where like you just lay it out so clearly. Like there's literally just bullet points of like, in this perspective, like, you know, like economy wise, like this is what was different for native women. And this is what white women were experiencing. And it really just does starkly contrast what these women were experiencing and how different it was and how eye opening it must have been. I mean, and there's also some women you talk about who went there and they, you know, I think a part of like a kidnapping thing or something. And then they just decided to stay. <laughs> They're like, wow, this is great. I have a lot more freedom here. Can you tell us about one of those women? I forget her name, but um Mary Thompson. She was she was taken captive as a child. And when the opportunity came to go back to the white world, she was married, she had children, the children because she had been adopted into one of the clans. And once you're adopted, you you become a family member. It it's it's difficult for us, I think, uh, settler colonialists to get our minds around what adoption was because adopted kids into a white culture have a sense of adoption, you know, have a sense of, but in a, a native culture, you become a family member, a sister, a mother, uh, and, and that is your, because your identity is based on who you're related to. How am I related? It's all about relationship. And so you then are an Indian. You know, it's not like you're a white person living in a family of Indians. You are an Indian. You are a clan member there or a clan member of that nation. And that was her experience. And that's the experience of a majority of women who were taken captive. So there's this one story, I don't think it's in the book, but I love this story that I found later. And it was when during the Revolutionary War, 
when uh, George Washington's orders were to destroy every living thing in Haudenosaunee territory. They didn't have enough money to pay the soldiers, the Revolutionary War soldiers, and so they were gonna pay them in land. So she escapes with her children and she takes sanctuary with a couple of African-Americans who are fugitive slaves who have fled slavery. Here is this adopted white captive taking sanctuary with, with fugitive slaves who are now free in New York State. And, um, well, they weren't free, they were fugitive slaves, but it was before there was an attempt to bring them back. And she says, she laughs and says, it would be so funny if they had known that I was an Indian. Because they saw it. So, so it's like, you want intersectionality in history? There you go. Right. right. <laughs> and so I've always, in like traditional history books, seen the word Iroquois. And that is more pop culture. Can you tell me like a little bit about the difference between the terms? Haudenosaunee means people of the longhouse, and that is their self-name. You know, it's, it began when, when Columbus, that bad navigator, got lost and thought he was in India and said, you must be Indians. You know, the, the joke that Native Americans have is, geez, we're glad he didn't think he was in Turkey. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but, but, you know, so, so we come... These, these, you know, colonialist mindset people thinking with the doctrine of discovery at our backs, the Pope saying, if land isn't inhabited by Christians, it is not inhabited. And that's the whole basis. It's a religious basis for the taking of the land. So we come in, these aren't real people, there's nobody here. We'll name them whatever we want to name them. And so the Iroquois is a name the French gave. And it really is a, a pejorative term. Like Sioux is a pejorative term for the Lakota. You can just go through the litany of, of the, the arrogance of, um, you know, okay, I'm going to call you blank. Mm -hmm. They always steal the kids put them in boarding schools and we give them English names. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. So Haudenosaunee is the proper term. Okay. It's funny. We've, we've covered about 220 women now and mm -hmm. uh, Chris Columbus continues to come up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, every time we go, Oh, who's that? He yeah. sounds nice. He's <laughs> not nice. <laughs> You can't get away from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think this topic of self-naming is really important because you talk about it in the book, and you also talk about the danger of kind of conflating the terms nation and tribe because it was a way of the U.S. kind of breaking treaties with people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. Treaties are the supreme law of the land under... Um, I think it's the Fifth Amendment or Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. And treaties are made nation to nation. A friend of Matilda Jocelyn Gage in the 1890s wrote an article for a New York paper saying, look, don't call them tribes because the treaties were not made with tribes. They were made with nations. Treaties is an anthropological term. They are sovereign nations. Gage wrote at one point, they are as sovereign as Canadians and Mexicans. It was when the state of New York was trying to force citizenship and the vote on Indian men, on, on Haudenosaunee men. And she said, you know, that's like trying to force it on Canadians and Mexicans. They are sovereign nations. And the Haudenosaunee, the traditional Haudenosaunee, they don't accept dual citizenship. They, you know, citizenship was enforced, was forced on, on Native Americans in 1924. And so for some, 
they accepted dual citizenship in their own nations and the United States. Deb Haaland is one is is somebody who accepts dual citizenship. The woman who is now, I hope, the Secretary of Interior. Um, but but um, I can't remember where I was. Oh man, and we've just started. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, okay, I'm, I'm gonna have to have a little drink to get. Yeah, <laughs> take one, take one. Everybody needs a time to sip. Um, so. Uh, you mentioned in like one of the like the forewords of the introduction of your book that you didn't think, you know, when you were early in your feminist life that you were going to look out and see like, oh, the suffrage movement was influenced by all of these indigenous people. And then you talk about how like I'm I'm a white woman writing this book. Can you tell me how that all kind of dominoed into this like collection of like a beautiful like a beautifully woven story. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, first of all, if if a student come to me, I suppose 40 years ago, I've been teaching for 50 years. So let's say 40 or 50 years ago, a student would have come to me and said, you know, I think that that indigenous women inspired white women. I would have said, I don't think so. You know, if that was true, somebody would have, I mean, we would all know that. So there was this sense of like craziness when I started trying to figure out how Matilda Jocelyn Gage got such a transformational vision of where she wanted the world to be. She's not talking about equality. She's talking about destroying patriarchy. She says every existing form of these institutions will be destroyed in our revolution. The result will be a regenerated world. Whoa, she's got to have seen something. So what could she have seen? Well, you know, this is confession time. I read her book, Woman, Church, and State, repeatedly. I'd written introductions to, you know, different times it was, it was uh, republished. Never caught that in the first chapter on the matriarchy, she says, never was justice more perfect, never was civilization higher. And she's talking about the Haudenosaunee. She's talking about indigenous women. Uh, this is a tribute to how deep racism goes. And I'll just put it on myself. I mean, it may not go this deep in you, but it sure as hell does in me. And, and it's the depth of, of underneath my wisdom it sits. I did not know that, that the stereotype I had in my head was Indian women walk 10 paces behind. What do they have to, to teach us white exceptionalist women anyway? Um, it, it, it poisoned my research for a very long time and, and still continues to. That's a challenge constantly. So when I finally made the connection and thought, whoa, you almost missed this. And how come if you missed this, nobody else has seen this? Is that a tribute to the racism in our country? And so what I thought was, what I realized was two, two likely things. One is that I'm going to get it wrong, and the other is I'm going to do damage. And so I have to proceed really carefully and slowly. And I decided I wouldn't publish anything until I was asked to by Native people. And I would take my direction from them. If this story wasn't right, if it wasn't appropriate, I would stop. And the first publication was actually in Aquasasani Notes, uh, Mohawk Nation publication. And the second one was in Northeast Indian Quarterly. And I was invited by Haudenosaunee and, and indigenous people to, to, to write for them about this work. So it's really been held in the hands of, of Haudenosaunee women the whole time and continues to be. Uh, Native Voices, which published Sisters in Spirit and then their imprint, Seventh Generation did the new book, We Want Equal Rights for Young People. 
and and the agreement that I had with them, which was incredibly unusual, was because they have Haudenosaunee connections and friends, and that's that was when I thought I want to go with that publisher, and they agreed that it needed all to be vetted by uh, Haudenosaunee women. So, well, I think that's incredible. It's really important and incredible because number one you took a lot of care, which is so present through the entire book, which is really greatly appreciated. And I think that one of the lessons I was learning when I was reading your story is that you were learning and changing your mind, which I think people need to realize can happen. And I think we need to <laughs> recognize, you know, like you're saying, like our implicit biases and this racism that sits underneath everything that we read and do and we need to acknowledge it and try and work on that because you know I think people like to think that especially academia is very rooted and still and it, you know people who think like oh well you know what you know and then that's it and it's like no we're always like learning and growing and we can I don't know explore new territory and I just think it's incredible that I think it's a real testament to how feminism is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I think part of it is we have to resist some of the uh, the process of the academy, which which really it, it's. <laughs> I, I remember one of the one of the grandmothers always asked me, "Did you ever hear of this woman, or did you know this woman?" And I, I didn't pay attention at first, and then I started really listening, and I would try to track down the person she was talking about. And then I found out that what happened was that these women had come to uh, the nation, stayed with the, the Haudenosaunee, studied them, gone off and written something, and never came back never came back, never shared what they'd written, never, it was, there was no relationship established. And, and, you know, I think in the Western tradition, we have this idea that, that ideas are just floating around there somewhere, and that we can just grab them and harvest them. And if, and if Native people have them, they don't really own them. We can, we can go in and we can harvest their ideas and publish them under our names and then we own them. And, um, you know, I, I think now that ideas really have a home. They live somewhere. And the respect for the home of the idea is, for me, part of the process of trying not to practice appropriation, but to practice appreciation. And, you know, the, the, the model that we have in the academy is appropriation. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a line, it's the two row wampum, the very first agreement between the settler colonialists and the, and the native people, uh, Haudenosaunee was the two row wampum. And it was, we travel, together, side by side, but you stay in your ship and we stay in our canoe. And so I keep trying to stay in my ship and not tell the story that's not mine, but just to tell the story that is. Mm, that's so interesting. We, um, so I teach sixth grade social studies, so middle school. And one of the things that has been added to the curriculum recently in terms of democracy is instead of just including, um, you know, Greece, is that one of the oldest democracies in the world is the Six Nation Confederacy. Can you tell us a little bit about the Six Nation Confederacy? That makes me so happy that that's getting into, that's, now. <laughs> oh, so, so we can anticipate that next we'll learn about the suffrage movement being inspired by these women who have had political <laughs> voice for a thousand years on this land while we're celebrating a hundred. Oh, I'm mm. taking, uh, I'm taking your book to my classroom library once, <laughs> once we're back from COVID. I'm going to be like, oh. here it is. <laughs> <laughs> one one piece by piece we spread the word yeah the the con oldest continuing democracy in the world 
over a thousand years ago, at least a thousand years ago, was was founded on the shores of Onondaga Lake. Now, I'm going to tell this as an outsider. So if you really want to know the story, you hear it from Haudenosaunee people. But I'll tell you the best that I can um, as a settler colonialist. This is how I understand the founding. That they were warring. And, I, and there's, there's stories about them playing practicing cannibalism, that, that it, the, the process of retribution had gotten out of control. The peacemaker came, and the first person to hear the message of peace was a woman, Jagunsase. And Jagunsase then followed the peacemaker, and they went nation to nation with Hiawentha, Hiawatha, who, who had all of his daughters killed by the worst of the worst um uh and 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 so they went nation to nation and they got all the nations finally to agree that they would practice peace among themselves and on the shores of onondaga lake they dug up the the uh tallest tree the tallest um fir tree and they threw all their weapons of war into the hole. And that's where I guess the phrase bury the hatchet comes from. Huh. And, and then they replaced it with the tree. And that tree is the tree of peace. And they put an eagle at the top of it to watch all the four directions to make sure if there were ever any signs of war. Then they went back to the worst of the worst, Taradaho. And Taradaho was the, the epitome of evil. They said he had snakes coming out of his hair and his body was all deformed out of the hatred and, and, and evil that he practiced. And one of the stories is that Jugunsase comes up to him singing a song of peace and she's able to comb the snakes out of his hair. And the, she's able, they're able then to bring him into the best part of himself. And they set him up as the chief of chiefs of the Confederacy. And Taradaho is a position that continues today. Now, the positions for each of the 50 chiefs were to be decided by the clan mothers. The clan mothers were given the responsibility for the land. They were given the responsibility for the government. They were, they were the agriculturalists. And that's true of the indigenous women from South to North America. They raised corn beans and squash, nutritionally perfect food, it, environmentally perfect, the, the um, the beans set the nitrates in the soil for the corn. They support each other. The squash leaves provide a, a sort of a micro um, um, climate for the shallow corn roots. And, and the squash covers the mound. The corn goes up. The, the beans twine around it. I mean, it's just this beautiful metaphor which is scientific, which is poetic, which is spiritual, which is the holi holistic reality as I experience it as an outsider of Haudenosaunee culture. So that the founding of the Confederacy results in the women having the ultimate decision-making about issues of war and peace having the ultimate responsibility for the economy of the culture because they're the agriculturalists. They raise the food collectively, but the men, when they bring the hunt, men are responsible for everything on the land, women for everything in the land. And because women and mother earth are the same, they're the creators of life. So, so when the men bring their uh, animals back from the hunt or what they've hunted, they bring that to the women and the women do whatever they want with it. They can give the whole 
the whole thing away to someone else. But they have then the responsibility from the creation of the Confederacy over a thousand years ago, women have the responsibility for decisions about the land. They have responsibility for decisions about war and peace. They control the economy and they are in charge of the government. My friend Louise Hearn, who is the Bear Clan mother of the Mohawk Nation says, we aren't feminists, we're the law. <laughs> I love that. Well, and that was another thing that I loved. Just like it all just made sense. There was no piece that didn't fit, you know, just like you're talking about their society worked kind of like the vegetables that they were growing, like everything supported each other. You know, everyone did their own job, but it worked together to make the most of what they had. And I Oh gosh, where was I going with this? It was a, oh, and I love that they're you're talking about how they're also responsible for war. And if they said no to war, they're like, we're not going to give you the supplies because like we're in charge of the supplies and we won't give them to you because we said no. And like just the immense power that they had was shocking to me. And it's <laughs> and it's still hard for us to grasp. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> it's just it's really great seeing it from all these different perspectives and like actual examples of it. <sighs> Yeah, and, and one of the things that's just crazy to me is that I've always seen that as power. I remember one time one of the clan mothers that when I was doing a talk with her, I think this may be in the book, and and um, I talked about, well, I actually, I quoted Elizabeth Cady Stanton talking about how the clan mother would cut off the horns of the chief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was before, it was for a feminist audience. Of course, they went wild at that <laughs> line. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> There's a picture. <laughs> the symbol of authority, the horns, actually. But, but when I finished, um, Audrey said, you know, I, I, as a clan mother, I have these responsibilities. And afterwards, we were talking about, you know, I'm always talking about rights and you're talking about responsibilities. What's the difference here? And what we figured out was that rights are what you talk about in their absence and responsibilities are what you talk about when you really have created a balance. And it, it's, Haudenosaunee women will not talk about having power over men. They talk about how there is a balance of responsibilities and that no one is above anyone else except that women have the spiritual authority because they have the potential to create life. And so Haudenosaunee men have, said, have laughed and said to me, you know, women are worth twice as much as men. And we know that. And, and it's from their tradition that if a woman was killed, the retribution was twice that because she carried the line, the life in her. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, hanging out with these women and with the men is, is like transformational. It's seeing the future I want to create. And that's despite the biggest attempt on the part of religion and government to destroy every single aspect of that culture and the resilience of it, that it not only continues, but there's a, um, a renaissance of, of indigeneity. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. When I love that notion of, you know, they're like, we're not weaker for having strong women. Like, you know, everyone is more powerful for it because we just covered um, Vigdis Finn Bogadottir, the first female president in the world. And, you know, I was watching interviews with these Icelandic men and this woman said, well, you know, Iceland is named the best place to exist as a woman. So how does it feel to exist here as a man? And he's like, oh my gosh, it's great. <laughs> like, life is better for everyone when things are more equal and shared. Like, it, you know, he was like confused by the question. He's like, what do you mean? It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the young men that we're creating today uh, in, in our settler colonialist culture, I think have a very different different response. I remember when when um, the uh, ex-president was talking about, well, that was just locker room talk. My grandson was so insulted. 
He said, I have never heard that kind of talk in the locker room. And if I heard it, I would, I would, you know, I would not allow it. I would not. He felt insulted that he was categorized in that patriarchal, toxic masculinity. Yeah, I mean, it affects, and this has just come to light so much more in the last 10 years, how much the patriarchy affects men just as much as it affects women. Um, Yeah, they they get perks, of course. They have the perks of privilege. They have all the perks of, of being the oppressor class. But you pay a price. White people pay a price for racism. Right. You, you lose your humanity. Yeah. Mm. So what do you think, in your journey of writing this book, What um, did it just flow from you? Or did you have a favorite thing that you wrote or a least favorite thing that you just like struggled with? Like, What was that writing process like? <sighs> Well, first of all, I never set out to write this book. I never set out. You know, I, the, the connection was one that I sure as heck didn't anticipate finding. But so there's a way in which I was brought into this knowledge, kicking and screaming, if you will, and with great skepticism. So I had to prove every way to Sunday that this really was, are you serious? No, I don't believe you. Find some more sources. and. Um, so I, you know, it was like 300 years of, of history to see really, and, and the work that I'm doing now, I'm, I've really gone even further and into areas of like violence against women and the non-existence of it in indigenous cultures. Whoa, how about that? Rape is, is culturally created behavior. Well, Feminist theory is beginning to tell us that, but Haudenosaunee indigenous women lived in a world before contact where that was the reality and even into contact. So the the unexpected is is um, probably the overriding theme of right of this writing. Uh, and and so there was a there was both a skepticism, uh, a questioning, Am I crazy? There was, you know, this was not an easy process because I only had a few guideposts in the non-native world along the way. But I remember um, Pete Jemison introduced me to speak at one point. He's a condole chief and the the um, manager at uh, Ganondagan, which is uh, uh, the Iroquois State Historic Site in New York State. And, and he introduced me saying, well, this is stuff that we've always known, but it took a white scholar to come along and, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, in the Native world, this was sort of like, oh, yeah, we knew that. Mm-hmm. But in the non-Native world, it was, is this real? Could this really be real? So, so I think that was the process, the writing process. I love to write. It's it's one of my favorite things, and and there's always this it's it's the challenge of oh this is so hard this is so difficult, but when it's done it's like I'll I'll read something years later and and I'll I'll read it and I'll go damn I wish I would have said that <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this sort of sense of, oh, I, I really like the way I said that. And that's not always the case, but, but there's enough perks in the writing that it, that it keeps me really joyous while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I try to write a couple hours every day. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And I do want to ask too, because you not only like did all this work with women's studies, you know, in the beginning, but and all these all this research, but you also founded the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation, which I think we can't overstate how important she is because when we covered her, I was shocked that no one was talking about her. I was like, she's amazing, but I guess there's a reason she was a troublemaker in a lot of people's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about the the foundation? Sure, I'd love to. So, uh, you know, I. I um, 
Okay, I gotta back up a minute here. I, I was asked once to present to museum people about, I've more than once I've been asked, but this time I was asked to, what, what are the things that really brought you to, it was when I won an award for the, the Gage Center, and and what what brought you to do this? You know how what got this like? So I was trying to figure out, and I came in with um, the major thing that I thought explained, and it was a form letter from my FBI file that I got through the Freedom of Information Act for my work in the anti-war movement and the early women's rights movement in the FBI. So this is you know dangerous to the to the uh, to the United States and J. Edgar Hoover, whose name should live in infamy, was the head of the FBI. And it's a form letter that was in my FBI file. And it it's identify how dangerous this person is. And J. Edgar Hoover identified me as a potentially dangerous woman, potentially dangerous person. So, so I th should have named the cocktail. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Drink to that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> potentially dangerous women. So you know, I mean, if you have something like that, you spend your life trying to live up to his expectations. <laughs> so, so the reason that I. I pointed to that was that I came into feeling like Matilda Jocelyn Gage's house needed to be saved. It was rental property. It was going to go under the wrecking ball. And, you know, it needed, there was a history there. It was offered as a station on the Underground Railroad. L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, was married there. It's the only one in the country where he lived. You know, Susan B. Anthony scratched her name in the window upstairs. Uh, it needed to be saved. But I had a couple things going against me. One was that I all my work had been on the streets and in the university. You know, I I I never served on a board. I didn't I didn't know how nonprofits ran. And I I hated historic houses because they were these robber baron, you know, mansions that you really wanted to know how much were the workers paid for this to create this. And that isn't what you learned. You learned this is where they ate and where they went to the bathroom and where they slept. And it's like, how many of those do you really want to see? So I was not at all the person who should do this. But in some ways, maybe I was because I'm a potentially dangerous person. <laughs> If I go into doing an historic house, you think it's going to be a traditional one? No. Every room in the house, first of all, when you come to the Gage Center, you have to agree to the two rules of the house. And one is you will think for yourself and you will check your dogma at the door because you need to be open to the controversial ideas that you're going to hear in. Now, you don't have to agree with them because dialogue is the language of the of the, the center. It's not a center for social justice dialogue. But each of the rooms in the house is dedicated to one of Gage's social justice issues. So the first room in the house is, of course, the Haudenosaunee room, where she that's where her vision of all the other work that she did really comes. So we also break all the rules of, of museums. You know, don't sit on the furniture, don't eat and drink, don't touch anything. Don't. So in the Gage Center, it's sit on the furniture, touch everything, try on the clothes, eat and drink. And then it was, I gave my students this challenge. What is the most extreme thing you could never do in a museum? And they came up with, you could never write on the walls. So you write on the walls in the Gage Center. You really That's are dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So, but it was, you know, the idea was, and I, and it, I think, the uniqueness was that it was filtered through a potentially dangerous woman. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was honoring a woman who broke the law. You know, she broke the law by offering her home as a station on the Underground Railroad. She could have gone to jail for six months. She could have been every 
every freedom taker, we call them not fugitive slaves, every freedom taker, she could have been fined a thousand dollars. That's $23,000 in today's money. She did it when she was pregnant, did it publicly. I mean, this woman kicked ass big. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and she also tried to break the law by voting because it was against the law for women to vote. So, you know, and she's writing about there will never be permanent peace during the Civil War until there is absolute equality for each group. Men and women, black and white, native born and immigrant, rich and poor. I mean, intersectionality was her game. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that is why Gloria Steinem says this is the woman who was ahead of the women who were ahead of their time. And that's why she got written out of history. Yeah, mm. we covered that in our episode. How, yeah, she was just, she was way too ahead and they couldn't risk her, you know, tarnishing the movement or whatever. And <laughs> it is really sad, but, you know, thanks to people like you, we can remember her and experience her at the Gage Foundation, which we can't wait to make it. Oh my gosh, too. yeah. <laughs> oh, road trip, road trip. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we have to go. You gotta, you gotta do it when I'm there. Oh, okay. absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and we actually, I want to tell you a couple of things. One is that we're really working to create now a virtual museum. Ooh. And with sufficient funding, we'll be able to do it. So if you have any donors that would like to, you know, throw a few bucks our way. Oh, yeah. But the other thing is that we have a Gage Ambassador for Human Rights program. And it's high school women. We've now created it nationally partnered with a, a, a similar group in Massachusetts, and also a third partnership with girls in Sierra Leone. And those girls are, are working to keep their peers in school and not into early marriages. They're being forced into, you know, child brides. And so our girls, our high school gauge ambassadors, are supporting the efforts of the Sierra Leone and every year they go up to Akwesasne, the Mohawk Nation, and rekindle the friendship that Cage had that led to her honorary adoption into the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation. And they meet with the young women up there that are going through their rite of passage ceremony. That's so incredible. Yeah, if I went to church, I would want you to be the preacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Dr. Wagner, we could talk to you forever, obviously. Um, <laughs> but uh, the last couple of things I want to ask you are just where can our listeners find you, the foundation, your books? I mean, where do you want to be found on the internet and elsewhere? <laughs> well, my website is sallyrushwagner.com. And my middle name is spelled R-O-E-S-C-H. So Sally is pretty self-evident, Rush in the middle and Wagner at the end. Um, and MatildaJocelynGage.org. And Matilda's name is spelled M-A-T-I-L-D-A-J-O-S-L-Y-N-G-A-G-E. Um, her name gets spelled wrong very often, even by historians. <laughs> so if you try to find her under the uh, incorrect spelling, you will, you will be lost. <laughs> but yep, that's me and, me and Matilda. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today and your books and your writing and everything you're doing. It was such a blast talking to you. Oh, it was fun talking to you. And uh, send me the recipe for that cocktail. We'll try it. We'll send you the recipe of the cocktail. We'll send you the link when the episode comes out. Yep. And we'll send you the link to our uh, Matilda, Matilda Jocelyn oh. Gates. But don't judge us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll share it with our folks. Okay. Oh, fun working with you. And oh. keep doing it. <laughs> We need, we need herstory on the rocks. <laughs> it's the only way to make it tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> it's so depressing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A couple of tears shed on the show. <laughs> uh, uh, do 
we have time for one more thing? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Totally forgot the Matilda effect. Oh, oh yes, 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 that was you know about about <laughs> when we when we um did her story. That's what I named the cocktails for the tilde. Oh whoa, okay, you gotta send the recipe for that. Okay. Make, <laughs> oh yeah, well we're trying to figure out how to you know get the world to know that this really is about Matilda Jocelyn Gage, named for her. And so uh, help us think that through and figure it out. You already did it. You've got a cocktail named for it. <laughs> we reference it in the podcast too, when it happens to other women. We go, yeah. Matilda effect. Yeah, we do. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Oh. Uh, you know, her, her woman as inventor, that is what Margaret Rosser was really, I think, talking about, where Gage wrote women into history. We have that pamphlet for sale through the Gage Foundation. Oh, cool. Gift shop, yeah. So if people want to know the backstory of the Matilda effect. Mm, perfect. Perfect. <gasps> oh, thank you so much for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's been so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking me to to hang out and drink with you. Oh, we Anytime. love it. It's our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. You got to keep writing more books. You yes. can keep coming back. <laughs> I, I have a couple in the making. I'll let you know. Hey, okay, good. Let us know. All right. Well, thank you so much. Goodbye. Say hi to Gordon for us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Listening to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.